Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, we have Thomas Walsh, who is on the U.S. Adaptive Ski Team. We'll hopefully be competing in Beijing. He is a Paralympian from Pyeongchang in 2018, a two-time bronze medalist from the World Championships, and he's the top-ranked U.S. standing skier. Thomas, welcome. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. It's so great to have you here. You have had quite a year because you were injured last year, right? So, so going through hip surgery and didn't get a chance to compete. How are you? How, how are things going as you're coming into the into the games? I'm actually very pleasantly surprised. Last year, as you mentioned, I tore my uh, labrum in my hip, and so I kind of took some time off. I did the surgery, went through the whole process of recovery, and about midway through the year, I kind of decided to take a step back and not really push getting into the gates. I really wanted to find my love and appreciation of skiing again. So I went out and free skied and enjoyed the time. And it's kind of this blessing in disguise where COVID was involved in the season and everything was in question. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of races and events were canceled or postponed. And so I just took that time to recover. And then coming into the end of the last season, I finally got back in the gates and uh, it's been positive really ever since working really hard, feeling really strong, and a lot of progression in my ski. Well, well, that's what you're saying, but I want to back up just a little bit because you tore the labrum in your left hip, right? Which is your, which is your good hip versus, Correct. right. So, so there's, there might be a compensation thing going on. Can you, can you tell us how, how, how you got to that point? I mean, so, so what your disability is and what might've happened with your hip injury? Absolutely. So I acquired cancer in my right pelvis and in my lungs around the age of 13. I had Ewing sarcoma and I had stage four cancer, which was a metastasized. And that required me to have a pelvic resection, uh, quote unquote, amputation, and some of my lungs removed. So that whole treatment involved chemotherapy, multiple surgeries, radiations, and lasted about a full year. And then uh, you know, moving on in my life into the skiing world, I have been kind of compensating with my left leg. Uh, as everybody with a disability does, we, we adapt and overcome in other ways and use our other strengths. So this new injury might be a result of somehow relying on the strength of my left leg a little bit more or my left hip and pelvis than my right side. It's interesting to watch you ski though, because it's, I know that it's your right leg, but it it doesn't look like there's an imbalance when you ski. You do a good job with your right leg. Do you feel like there's a, a difference? And how do you how do you approach? Because skiing is so much about being symmetrical, right? Is it one of those where you go to Winter Park and you race on that that fall away and go, oh, this is this is totally made for me because it all falls to the left. So I can make left turns and I don't have to make a great right turn. How do you, how do you approach it? And, and how do you look as balanced as you do? That's, that's really insightful. That's something not a lot of people think about. And your history in skiing really speaks to that. Um, I have kind of had the approach in my Paralympic career and as a skier, trying to ski as balanced and quote unquote able-bodied and symmetrical as I can. I have had to, you know, adapt and, create some techniques to help me uh, initiate turns and maintain that balance in a little bit different of a manner. Um, looking at a course in total, I have to think about, okay, so some of these right footers, I might skid out a little bit. I might have a little different approach. However, I need to be able to use my left side in order to compensate and create a better place for me to have that kind of mistake on my right side. Um, as a trained eye like you, I'm sure if you slow down my video, you might be able to see some of it. And as the elite athlete I am, I'm always constantly scrutinizing that and trying to nitpick and pick apart those little pieces to get it as perfect as possible. But uh, I really, really have worked really hard to use other parts of my body to, to make those right-footed turns as equal as my left-footed turns. There's, there's always like, like the key 
that kind of opens it up, right? That you're you're coming from one turn into another turn. What's the what's the little hook or the little thing that you go, okay, if I do this well, it will help me get into the next turn. What do you think about? One of the big things that I know I need to have is my platform on my skis. And because of that compensation on the right side or the lack of, of movement and feeling or ability, I can intrinsically feel that when my body is not in the correct position, I know that unfortunately that turn's not gonna look good. So practicing that repetition, that body, you know, understanding or what you call spatial awareness and feeling of trying to get to that position every time. So those turns do have that symmetry. And to that platform, are you talking about like when you finish, like getting to flat skis, getting to being basically square over your skis? Is that what you mean? Absolutely. Um, coming out of, you know, when I'm really arcing and laying into it, that body movement and body position as I drive with the skis, I have this tendency to have my core and specifically my head actually lead my body, which limits my overall body to be able to pressure the skis because I don't have the same kind of nerves and muscle or skeletal system on my right side, I kind of tend to fall inside. So remembering to follow the ski into the new turn, putting more body weight over that right-footed turn gives me that pressure in that spring to push off and get back to the left side. Really interesting. So, so in some ways it's almost similar to me skiing in a mono ski, where it's like you have upper body and you have lower body where you don't necessarily have the physical dexterity to be able to, to manipulate your ski with your legs. So it's a matter of putting your leg in the proper position to allow it to be strong and to do the turn. And in some ways you're steering really with your upper body as opposed to steering with your lower body. Am I getting you correctly? That's pretty close. I think uh, it's definitely related. It's, if I have my upper body in the correct position, then my lower body will be able to do it. Um, I've definitely, I can definitely feel a difference in my legs because I'm missing an obturator nerve in my right side. So kind of just making sure I feel it and, and I, I have to, to work on getting that every time um, is, is really key for me to arc every single turn. And when you first started, were you literally just sort of like looking at your leg, looking at your ski, like as you're going into those right footed turns, because you don't have that same kind of nerve reception that you did before? And, and that's a really interesting question, because I have now lived my life longer as a cancer survivor than I have before I had cancer. And I've been skiing longer as a cancer survivor with this impairment than I did before that. Um, I'm also a lot older and stronger and you know maybe not that much bigger but still older um so i remember the first day that i put skis on after my surgeries and it, it it wasn't the same i i do remember that um i had to move a little bit differently and of course i was going very slow but i do very vividly remember that and now that i've gone through all these years and all this training uh working up and making progressions and improvements uh, I really not sure I remember what it was like. And so I just need to make sure I'm executing what I'm trying to do. So it's become intuitive now. Whereas, Absolutely. And I'm sure you felt the same thing in the monoski. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was the kind of thing of like, I don't know how this thing actually turns back in the day. You know, and, and then, then it gets to the point where you are working, which is the intention, right? Where you're working in concert with your equipment. And, and so your technique, everything kind of makes sense and you don't have to think about it. Whereas in the beginning, you really did have to think about it. Now, you were saying, so you're born in, in 95, right? So this is so this is 26. You were saying to me, you're you're getting some breakthroughs, and you were saying, as an old guy, it's nice to get some breakthroughs. Are you thinking because I don't really think of 26 as being that old? Are you thinking of yourself as an old guy? And what are what are the breakthroughs that you're getting? Uh, thinking of myself as an old guy, I'm I'm not necessarily the oldest on the circuit, but I'm definitely not the youngest. And as 
you know, the cycles of the games and our sport develop, uh, I'm definitely not close to being the youngest anymore. And so a lot of these younger kids are coming in with different impairments. And so the game kind of changes and I see that and it really pushes me to work harder to make those games. And this past year, actually after my surgery, I was a little worried about not being able to come back to where I was. I really was, uh, as anybody with an injury, that's kind of a, a little thought we have in the back of the head. But over these past couple months and specifically this last trip in South Bay, I have felt like I've been skiing really quite, quite well. And I've really pushed myself to have the equipment work for me instead of having to work the equipment. And so finally making one little step up on that plateau kind of changed my whole outlook and my mindset of, okay, you know, I'm not 18 anymore, but it just reminds me of athletes like able-bodied skier Tommy Ford. It took him how many years to win a World Cup? And then he's been consistently up there. You know, he's dealing with other injuries and stuff, but, but just that prime example is like Thomas, okay, I'm not, I'm not the rookie anymore. I'm, I'm pre-seasoned now. And that doesn't mean there's never room for improvement. Well, you kind of took the place by storm when you came on as a rookie, right? And then it took you, what, five years to win, to win another race, right? And, and then seeing this progression, what does that feel like? that progression like like when because I often think that skiing is so much about like you learn the same thing over and over again like you 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 know what you're supposed to do and then you oh I didn't do that okay I need to do it but this is something that sounds like it's new for you what's 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 that feel like what how exciting is that it's absolutely the most rewarding feeling um I did take the circuit by storm and I skied floppy, I skied reckless. I was definitely not as mature in my physicality and as an athlete as I am now. Uh, it was a long few years before I won a race. I was very, very fortunate to, to perform what I need to perform. Uh, I got a couple of world champs medals. I won a crystal globe and fallen. And I was always there. I was always up there. Um, but hearing the same things about my skiing and coach is telling me for years this is what you need to do I see it in my head I'm trying to execute it on the hill maybe it took me just for someone to say something in one silly way and it's it just clicked and I felt something different and I was able to put my body in the position that I needed to and having a different outlook and, and mindset I think was really really good for me um, coming back from an injury and having the understanding that all right Thomas there's nothing to lose here I don't have to prove anything at this point. I'm not at the top of my game. No one's really expecting me at the top of my game. It allowed me to, to over my thought process and say, you know, I've always tried something new, but now I'm really going to try something new. I'm just going to fail as hard as I can until I get it right. And there were days in our first Sasuke trip, uh, Sasuke camp trip this, this year, that I, I didn't finish a single run in training. And it, as an athlete, it's hard to get over that thinking Thomas I'm failing I'm not I'm not finishing any runs I am embarrassed for people watching me blow out every course or my coach is mad at me because I'm not making the best of it but finally analyzing that saying I have to fail more in order for that small little piece to just click to improve my game that much it's funny that you talk about that because I mean looking at what you've done where you said you you free skied a lot last year you weren't engaged. Sometimes that gives you the space to then be able to be able to feel what's going on with your skis to to approach it in a little bit different way. But you also said about the coach. I mean, I always think that coaching is so much about being able to say the same thing in a hundred different ways, so you connect with that one person. But it's also it's also about that progression. I think I see this more in skiing than any other sport where you've found your baseline and you're just going along on your baseline, but you're still working. And then you see that person, either you or somebody else that jumps up that little bit. And all of a sudden they just start getting better. They had, they had been in this position and suddenly they're getting better. And you'd had a weird year, right? I mean, a weird year with COVID, a weird year with the, with the surgery, what are you what are you taking from those experiences into this season? Because you were also saying 
sort of embracing the idea of DNFs too, where maybe you maybe you didn't have to be perfect. Maybe you had to be a little bit ugly in order to go fast. What are you taking? What are those lessons that you're taking into this season? Absolutely. And this kind of journey really started the year previous um, when I finally won a race again. Uh, that year I did decent in GS. I managed to get overall, uh, you know, third place overall in GS. However, I finished two slalom races in the entire season. Uh, a bunch of them I DNF the first run. And then I won the second run by second. And so that's when I started to embrace the change. And then COVID came and, you know, that rocked everybody. Uh, no one really knew training and everything. And then on top of that, I'm so excited to get back to skiing. I end up getting injured. And so that was kind of a blow after a blow. Um, but that lesson of, all right, now I have the time. I can take my lessons from that previous season, the progressions that I were making in my skiing, I was starting to move in the right direction. I took a mental break because of injury. And coming back now, I'm actually really quite happy. Um, going into next season, I think that the uncertainty and kind of the, the, the new environment of our sport regarding you know COVID or regarding the places we're traveling and the big Paralympic games, I'm feeling really happy with the fact that I've had that time to fail. I know what it feels like to execute what I need to do. And now before these games and world championships, I have a little bit of time to actually implement that into a race setting. It's interesting because you're talking about the balance that you need in order to be a successful ski racer, right? There, there's sort of two elements that are going on. One, do you have the speed, which, which sounds counterintuitive to some people, just because you're all going down a hill. So you think that you have a speed, but, but no, there is a difference based on what you're doing. But even if you have the speed, you don't, you don't get to win unless you make it to the finish line. How do you, how do you look at that as a balance and say, okay, where do I need to be and how can I be prepared for the biggest races? I guess, you know, reflecting that question, coming into the, the first real gate training camp, I had that thought of, okay, I know I can finish a course. I was just a little worried about kind of how I was going to be in comparison to other people who hadn't taken that risk. And opening up my mind to just letting it be what it is finally made me feel more confident to finish those runs and not really worry about what the rest of the field was doing. I was able to just put it down the hill and try and repeat that. Um, knowing that I have the speed was, was a big concern of injury. And Sasfe taught me that I did. And I'm just happy for it. Uh, when it comes to the big competitions, I am fairly confident that I'm going to be pretty competitive. And that energy and positive affirmation of knowing I'll be okay is kind of making me feel like I can push harder. And that's always the hope, right? That if you, if you feel like if you have a good run, that you should be successful, then you can be a little bit more comfortable in who you are as you're approaching, as opposed to thinking, I mean, there are times that I think we've all showed up and shown up at a race and, and said, okay, I need to do something that I've never done before in order to be successful, which usually doesn't end up working out well at all. You've put in a lot of training though too, right? Can you talk us through, so you said you got into Gates in like March, April of last year. And then Correct. what have you done in the interim to get to this point where you're headed to your first NORAM races? So you'll be racing against people from Canada and, and there'll probably be some other people I would imagine in that race as well, some other countries. Mm -hmm. So I went through my rehab and I finished that. And then coming into the summer, I... Um, I'm a big believer in the balance and I've been doing this for a few years, just like you did. And I can go to the gym every day and beat my head against the wall and move weights and work out and kill myself. And that's okay. And I, I did a lot of that. I've done a lot of that over the years, but this summer I also really spent a lot of time to work on my mental game and try and enjoy summer a little bit. I played a lot of golf and it may sound completely weird, but that was a huge eye opener to me of, my mental strength 
and my ability to execute things. Um, it helped me with spatial awareness and organization and everything like that. Uh, when that season ended, I actually had to take a step back again and realize I needed to focus a little bit more on my specific strength in my left hip and leg. Uh, after my first day getting back on Super G skis, I started to feel a little bit of achiness and pain. And talking with our support team and our physios and our coaches and realized that that's kind of a hard movement pattern when I'm in a tuck going really fast in Super G, how to recreate those forces on a hip. You can, you can do some things, um, but it's hard to recreate without actually trying. So between these two European trips, I went back and I worked with the Howard Head Performance Team in Vail, and we did a lot of exercises, and I worked for a couple of weeks on just specific left hip stuff. And I went back to camp and haven't really felt any pain since. So that really was, was a good thing. So you played a lot of golf. Can I ask this? How good a golfer are you? I am by no means excellent, but I think I'm pretty okay. You're pretty okay. Like, what, where do you shoot? What do you shoot? My best score, uh, I, I'm not a great handicap, but I have around a 16 handicap. So that, that's, that's, that's a good weekend golfer handicap. So, so you're, you're high 80s, low 90s kind of thing. Yep. My, my best score this summer was an 83, and I haven't touched it since, but I'll, I'll, I'll work again to get there. <laughs> 83 is legit. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to give you a hard time about shooting 83. Absolutely. I just got to make sure I don't distract myself too much on the golf course from the main focus of skiing. We were talking main focus of skiing. And the thing is, I, I was reading about some of your, some of your heroes in the sport. I mean, obviously you grew up with Michaela Sheffrin, who's one of your heroes with uh, Stephen Nyman's one of your heroes, um, Marcel Hersher makes perfect sense. I mean, one of, one of the best guys ever. Michaela said that he is the most beautiful skier. I mean, obviously she's fairly decent at what she does in this sport. I mean, possibly, probably the best ever. What does that mean to you when some, when a hero of yours, who also happens to be a good friend, says something like that? It took me, a, took me a while to really process that because I know Michaela and we compliment each other as you know, humans and as friends a lot. Um, but that kind of put my career into perspective. And not only was I honored and grateful to hear that, um, but it, it, it's really humbling because someone like her who is, is the best skier in the world, uh, it maybe, maybe makes me think that I have a chance but I, I'm doing something right and uh, I need to continue down the path. I, yes, I would think that that's a fairly decent endorsement that she's saying that you're the most beautiful skier. I mean, it's, because skiing is a beautiful sport. I mean, obviously you have, a, you have an art background as well in addition to your skiing and it, there is a melding of the two, but then also looking at, at a guy like Stephen Nyman. So Stephen is, he's a downhiller. He has a foot on you right i mean you're five four he's six four more than yeah he's he's a big guy and you're 130 and he's 220 ish what does that do in the realm of skiing to to look at you could have a guy like nyman and he can be your competitor what do you have to do well as a, as you said, a smaller statured guy to be successful? I think I just really need to capitalize on my strengths. Um, Nyman was originally a slalom skier, believe it or not. Yeah. And world junior champ, right? In slalom. Correct. And I'll, I'll, I, I make this joke all the time. I'll get in the start gate in World Cups or at other important races. And there's an Austrian dude in front of me who's a foot taller than me there's a guy behind me who's another foot taller than me and I'm just looking up and I go all right boys let's see at the finish and I just gotta gotta know my strengths on steeps um carrying speed and trying to get low and arrow uh I really never let that stop me there's a lot of people who have um kind of questions my ability based on my size but their skiers uh like Popoff from Bulgaria he's 5'4 with the same height he's, he's built a little bit bigger but he's up there on the able body World Cup circuit, absolutely crushing it. So 
I just like to joke and I say I'm more grounded. I don't have to move as far. You're more grounded. So you were saying that 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 the steeps, that being arrow, what can, can you be more specific about like what your what you think your strengths are? Do you do you ski better on the steeps than other people? Are you able to maintain a better line? Like what kind of stuff are really your specific kind of strengths? I would say my strengths are definitely steeps. Uh, I'm pretty confident on my ability to ski on ice and varied snow. That might come from my level of free skiing or my experiences on the East Coast uh, at Green Mountain Valley School when I learned to ski on East Coast ice. Um, and I think some of the lessons I learned as an able-bodied skier too ha have made me see that, all right, Thomas, it's going to be windy. I got to get low to the ground. I got to stay as tight as possible. Um, I can't afford to make a mistake here. If it means sacrificing a line to carry speed on the flats, I got to do it. Um, and those, li those little tricks that I just got to gotta make everything a little bit more extreme. I got to try and push out of the start a little bit more. I got to reach for the finish line a little bit farther. Uh, and that really has, has helped me. And I think physically, I do have somewhat of a disadvantage compared to other guys in the circuit because I don't have the weight. Ski racing is an inertia sport. Um, but making sure I have all those things in tune and really having confidence in the abilities that I have with my ski belt. It, it's the question that everybody has to ask themselves in the sport, isn't it? Like, what do I do well and how do I, how do I take advantage of what I do well versus everybody else? And it's, it's a hard sport for the general public because you watch, you know, will that guy look good and that guy look good? And, and it's hard to figure out, to find those little things that can be a differentiator but for you to know what you were able to do, what you're able to do well makes a huge deal. You mentioned Green Mountain Valley School back in, in Waitsfield, Vermont. And I mean, this is this is part of you learned how to ski on ice, you said, but you also you got diagnosed like the day before you were supposed to go to school and then 14 months of chemo and surgery and all of these things and then came back to school so you were you were not just learning how to ski on ice you were learning how, how to ski on ice in a fairly compromised situation as well uh, you know i guess i guess i was even even more than that i wasn't really initially trying to learn to ski on ice or even trying to ski i was really trying to find myself uh and really just become uh a high schooler again. Um, skiing took a few years after my cancer treatments. Uh, it took me a while. I, I went to GMBS barely having the strength to, to run. So that really, that, that whole experience there and the, the, the warmth and the welcomeness that I received from then headmaster Dave Gavitt really helped me kind of rebuild my life from the ground up. Um, and having those skiing foundations and learning how to ski again and then skiing on ice and doing okay on it uh really shaped you know not the skier but really the person i am today it seems like are you coming more to that journey i mean obviously you went through that journey as a kid I was reading in one of your one of your blogs that you quoted quoted warren miller uh you know a pair of skis are the ultimate transportation to freedom and for people who don't know Warren Miller, he really is, was the originator of the ski movie, had a super dry sense of humor, had this, had this voice that you knew it was Warren Miller, right? And so, so when you quoted that, what, is, what does that mean to you? What does Warren's quote mean? As, as a kid diagnosed with cancer, I was forced to grow up pretty early. And the question of mortality and, and my purpose in life, uh, I had to address that really early and young. And so understanding what skiing was to me um, really allowed me to, to relate to that quote and, and feel that I not only was born to ski, but I feel that I was blessed to survive to continue to ski. And that's not necessarily just racing, right? I mean, this is this is the sport. This is the the people. It's the 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 outside. Is is it the whole thing for you? The holistic view of skiing? 
it's the whole thing. And I came to the idea really after I was finishing high school, I decided to stop ski racing. And I was confident and comfortable in the fact that I said, Thomas, you might not be a ski racer anymore, but you always be a skier. And that's something I hold true today. While I compete and I love to compete and I love to go fast and I love to push myself that way. I think that having a love of skiing as a sport has really let me become comfortable in the fact and addressing the challenges of racing. The challenge, and what are, what are the challenges of racing? It's interesting just to say the challenges of racing, but there are some specific challenges in racing. What are they for you, the challenges of racing? I'd say it comes to my body. The physical aspect is huge. Um, the impact of injury and recovery, and that's something I have to take into effect of my life down the line. Uh, you can get really hurt skiing and I, I don't want to end up hurting it to a point where I'm not able to live the rest of my life as comfortably as I want. Then we come to the point of education. It is difficult to go to school and be a ski racer when I was. Uh, I persevered through that and was happy to get my master's degree. And so that was another challenge I had to overcome. And then maybe lifestyle and emotional choices. We're on the road a lot of the time. I felt initially in my career, I was missing out a lot of experiences that my peers were who weren't competing as a professional athlete. And as I've matured in this world, I've started to see, you know, it is definitely a blessing. Uh, I have the question constantly of what's next? What am I going to do? What would I have done if I wasn't doing this? But those three challenges really have um, been, been a constant and I've, you know, worked through it and, and become more comfortable as an athlete it's an interesting because in one of your other blogs, you mentioned the the sort of sliding doors aspect of like if you hadn't had the surgery or the uh, the cancer or the surgery, et cetera, what would you have done? I mean, it's it, it's an it's an exercise in the hypothetical for the most part, right? Because the mm -hmm. likelihood of you actually knowing what you would have done probably isn't isn't as high as 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 we all want to think it is, but. What do you, in, in your quiet moments when you think, okay, maybe if this had, hadn't happened, I would have done this. Do you have any, do you, do you have any ideas in those quiet moments? I do because after high school, I actually ended up quote retiring. I, I stopped skiing after high school. I went to art school. And so I had kind of crossed that bridge. I feel I kind of made my choice of the world and the art world and the performing arts and the film. And that was kind of the way I wanted to go. Uh, but my love of skiing and the opportunities that came, I just kind of backtracked, came back to it. So I have that experience and I have that education and that life of art that I so greatly appreciate. And it still is a part of me every day. Um, and maybe that's where I'd be. Do you think so? I mean, that would be an interesting thing that if you had grown up and you hadn't had the cancer, you might've just decided just to take that right turn and go completely into art, which is funny because in looking at it, that you went through the cancer, then you went back to skiing and then you took the right turn from the outside. It looks like you made the decision, okay, the skiing thing isn't for me. I need to go in the opposite direction, but it sounds like you're saying that you might've gone in that opposite direction and possibly in a more profound way if you hadn't had the cancer. That's a good way to put it. I'm really not sure. I do know, though, the reason I went back to skiing um, was because in the darkest hour of my treatments, uh, that is, you know, skiing is what got me through it. And that's what I wanted to do. And I went back to ski academy and I went back to trying to be an athlete because I realized that without that, that wouldn't have been my life. I, I'm not sure I would have been I was happy with it. And I had to prove to myself, I wasn't trying to win races at the time. I was just trying to finish. I was just trying to go to school and, and ski. And I had to prove to myself that I was able to do it. And I didn't do it for anybody else. I didn't try to ski race again um, to make a national team. I, I did it because I, I felt that if I did that and if I came back to it, that experience with cancer and the struggles that I went through would have been worth it. It's kind of, in some ways, it's almost like if the if the world ended tomorrow, you'd still go skiing. 
in some ways, right? It's, but but it sounds like, I mean, when you were going through chemo, when you were in the midst, sort of like three quarters of the way through your treatment, you went out and just skied on the bunny hill, right? Isn't it? it didn't you? And, and it, it sounds like, does, does that moment come forward where it takes you out of out of the depression of the of what you're going through of the process of trying to get healthy but do you take that moment to now when you're not going through this difficult time i'm not sure it's the same taking to it i think maybe it's built up inside of me somehow um i know it definitely helped me coming back from my other injury this past year I spent hours just looping the bunny hill of Beaver Creek Mountain in, in Colorado. And I couldn't have been happier just because I was there. And so that struggle, I feel, has given me the ability to just be happy to be out there. It's not always fun when I'm racing. I'm always either cold or my feet hurt. There's always something easy to complain about. But I know inside, and if I reflect and think about it, it could be a hell of a lot worse. So I'm just happy to be there. It makes, I mean, that's the simple stuff that is the best part of life, right? Is that this is a sport that brings me happiness, period. End of sentence. That is it. And and I would imagine that, that, that there are other things too, right? I mean, we're talking about the cancer, we're talking about the surgery, but in addition to the surgery, you, you still have, I mean, you uh, so lymphedema, uh, on on your leg, right? So so this is in the the right leg. This is the issue, and so lymphed lymphedema. I mean, it sounds in some ways it doesn't sound all that bad, right? A a, a, a swelling of the leg. I talked to Tatiana McFadden, who is a wheelchair racer, and she had lymphedema as a result of blood clots that she had in her legs, and went from you know sort of. 110 pounds to like 130 pounds or something. I forget exactly what, what the specifics were, but, but trying to come back to, she's still three, four, five years later, probably not quite five years, but trying to get back to who she was and trying to get her body back to it. What's that struggle like for you? I know that you wear a sleeve on your leg all the time, which I'm assuming that that's a compression sleeve to help reduce the swelling, but what's that, what's that struggle with? Cause this is the cancer one is one that you've, that you've kind of dealt with in some ways. It's like, this is, this is where you are now, but the lymphedema is one that you have to deal with on a, on a regular basis. Being in the environment on the ski team and having athletes of all different kinds of impairments. Some are, you know, progressive and some are not. Um, having lymphedema, knowing that my leg will, continue to swell for the rest of my life is definitely a thought that I've had. Um, it is very painful to put on ski boots with a swollen foot. Uh, I have to do a lot of tools. Uh, I use various compression pumps. I use sleeves. I use wraps. I do all this stuff to try and ease that pain. And, you know, call me, call me young and ignorant, but I'm going to do it as long as I can. And I'm going to try to perform at the highest level uh, with the equipment as tight as possible to get the best response as long as I can. So I, I understand, I guess maybe I'm not that smart to try and think about it every day. I, I know it's there. It's something that I will live with. Um, but as long as I can take care of myself and manage it, I just continue to do what I do. No, which is, which is awesome. But I think about it like in terms of flying to Beijing. I mean, this is, this is the biggest race series of races of your year. And it's a really long flight from here to Beijing. And when you're on a plane is when you're more likely to swell. And then it's a matter of how do you one control the swelling? How are you going to perform? But, but how do you, how do you mitigate the situation as best you can? Yeah, I've had a lot of practice with that over the years. Skiing, we travel a lot. Um, I wear compression. I double up compression. I do self-massage. I travel with compression pumps. And so these types of tools and this practice of doing it for these past few years uh, really give me the confidence to know that I have it under control uh, for, for the time being. 
Yeah. And that's, that's really, I mean, that's part of being an athlete, isn't it? Is these are the situations, these are the things I can control. I need to control what I can control. What's it like looking at Beijing this year? Because one, you haven't skied there. Nobody's skied there. So you don't really, well, I guess some of the Chinese athletes probably have skied there, but you don't really know what to expect. And you don't really know what to expect of the season. I mean, you've got a world championships and then you have a Paralympics, a world championships in January and then Paralympics in March, which is unheard of, but it's because of COVID. So how, how are you approaching this? I mean, especially with sort of this, this new found kind of more, do I want to call it more relaxed attitude? I don't think it's a more relaxed attitude. It's more, more open and honest attitude is really what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. I, I'm just, I'm trying to approach the season uh, as I would any other season in reality. Um, that's easy for people to say as there are a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of chaos around what's going on. But if we look at what we've been doing with our team, with Team USA and our performance staff and everything, we have really had a lot of practice. We're really, really lucky with the fact that we've gone through all these COVID protocols. That's a thing of the past for us now. We deal with it. Um, it's what we do. And so looking at the races leading up to world championships, it's going to be just any other season, just going to approach each race and try and ski fast. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Um, going into the you know, world championships, I've got a couple of medals and podiums to defend, and I'm just going to ski fast as I can. And going into Beijing, yeah, it's going to be a different environment, but I can take the experiences that I learned in Korea and Pyeongchang, that that was a whole new experience for me too. And so embracing that idea of what's around the corner, uh, I feel more confident going into the next games, even though I haven't been there. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be interesting in very different ways. But at the end of the day, like you said, Chris, it's what can I control? And knowing that I'm as prepared as possible, having confidence in my ability, uh, believing in support and team and work that I've put in, it, it, it's, it's another race and I'm really looking forward to it. Is that, is that challenging? I mean, sometimes it's, it's one of those things that's easy to say as an athlete, right? Is that, you know, I've put the work in, I need to believe in the work that I've put in. I need to believe in my team and, and sort of take myself out of the equation and just do what I'm supposed to do without really thinking about it. It's, it, it sometimes is the biggest challenge though, isn't it? That, that thing between our ears wants to take over when things get important. And it's like, oh no, this is a big race. Are you good at, at, you know, sort of believing in the work that you've done and letting your body take over? I think that's something that experience in the years that I've had on the team and at different races has really helped me with. Um, I very much remember the season that I got the fall Crystal Globe and working with my sports, you know, psychologist, uh, about how to best mentally prepare and how to best have an outlook and, and where I need to be as an individual, you know, the day before race, in the start gate, even in the finish line. Um, that has come with time for me. As the young gun, that wasn't on my mind. I was just trying to charge and I really had no fears. And as I've gotten older and the more training and the repetitions and all this, those things kind of creep in. So that training with that sports you know, psychologist has helped me get there. And at at the end of the day, I've had how many hours and how many runs and how many turns and and all this stuff. So that age and experience, and I feel the maturity as as an athlete has given me kind of that contempt about what I need to do. It's, and that's when it gets cool, actually. I mean, because you've, you know, you're an artist as well. And that's when you can create is when you get to this point of going, okay, I don't need to worry about any of that stuff. I can just go and do what I need to do. I can be comfortable in the moment and, and I can actually feel it and have fun as opposed to being in my head. And it's how important is it to tell the story? You've started writing, writing a blog and you're doing that in conjunction with skiing and with the, with the International Paralympic Committee as well. How, how important is that to, to tell the story? Why do you need to tell a story? I think it's, it's a useful tool for me 
you know, personally. Um, but it also gives me a way to have a different viewpoint and, and look at it from a different angle rather than, than from my own point of view. Uh, the, the, the reflection, the exposure, and, and the overall, you know, improvement or, uh, you know, drive of the Paralympic movement is something I'm passionate about. So sharing that with other athletes and with hopefully the greater athletic community uh, gives me a sort of, of happiness. Right. And it's because I mean, it is the competition part of it. But at the same time, I mean, it looks like you're you are asking the questions about more of a societal kind of thing. Like, what is my place here? How can how can you contribute? Are those are those things that you think about? like on a, on a daily basis? I think I do. Um, I am very unique, just like you in, in our Paralympic skiing world that I had experiences in the able-bodied skiing world before I came here. So I, for the first few years, and even to this day, am learning about what it's like to live as a disabled person and be a part of a disabled community and really getting in touch with how rich and loving and unique our community of, para-alpine and all paralympic sports really is and i just have this desire to share that with everybody and we're not going to change the world and the outlook or the social view on people with impairments overnight it's not going to happen but if i'm able to do one small thing that might help um to help teach people and and expose what we do and who we are in a new way that is something that i, I am very interested in i do think about and, but it's but it's sometimes what in some ways what do you think are what do you think is the impression that people that people have of you when they see you as an athlete and what is the impression that you want them to have of you do the two meet or or are they different I ski with two skis and two poles so I look very able-bodied when I ski so um people's views of me are oh he's just a you know a normal skier when I have a ski clothes on or anything um and that's fine to me that's that's how I look however I'm on a Paralympic team and so one of the things I constantly think about is not all impairments or troubles or struggles or things like that are visible you know no one really knows my history you look at me I look pretty normal um and it's not that I want people to necessarily always know what, what's going on with me or what happened to me. But I think it's, it's a, a cultural understanding that we're all different, but we're all here doing the same things. We're all still skiing. Right. Which obviously we've talked about this, that that's the, one of the essences of your, of your being is that you actually get a chance to ski. There's this, uh, on, on Instagram, there's this, this thing called Tangled Outriggers, where it is like all these crashes from, from disabled skiers, from Paralympic skiers, and there's some nasty, nasty crashes. What, what is something like that saying about disability, about the Paralympic movement, about life in general? I, I really like that this page presents to be a way to kind of break through that, break through that social and societal norm of the quote unquote pity of the disabled athlete or the pity of a disabled person. Um, those crashes are pretty gnarly. I, a lot of them, they, they hurt. Just look at them. It looks like they really, really, really hurt. Have you, uh, do you have one on there? Have they captured a crash of yours? They, they put a, a, an embarrassing moment of a straddle I had at the game. Uh, I straddled the first gate of the fall and it was super combined. And, and that was a pretty embarrassing moment, but it shows that we're just other athletes. And it's really cool to see how a, a mono skier absolutely destroyed themselves on the ski hill. And, and it looks bad, but knowing that they got up and they kept trying, clearly. they kept trying to ski and they were okay. They maybe had an injury, but they came back. And that's just what other athletes do. So I think it's a real positive thing. And um, who knows what they'll do with that? It, it's really cool. And, and I hope it gets more exposure. 
No, I hope it does too. And it, and it's desensitizing it, isn't it? I mean, I feel like as a kid, I, I grew up like watching MASH on TV, you know, which is all these doctors who are always doing crazy, funny things in the midst of a war zone. And it's like, oh, okay, we're still human. We're still, we're still okay. If we can laugh, then we can, then we're all right. And, and there's a part of that in, in, in Paralympic sport where sometimes it's like, oh no, everything has to be great. Everything has to be perfect. And it's like, no, like that's not life at all, right? Like somebody wins, somebody loses, somebody crashes horrifically. And, 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 and if you get up and move on, then, then things are pretty good still. Just natural competition, just like any sport and any athlete. So we talked a little bit about Michaela and you, you guys have been close. And I saw that at one point you were wearing her father, her father Jeff's uh, saying or motto on your helmet of be nice, think first, have fun. What one, why, why did you put that on your helmet and what does it mean for you? I was in Russia. I was actually traveling to Russia at the time of father's passing. And so I was actually really debating whether going home to be uh, around during that time. But uh, Jeff was actually in, in some of my surgeries and was an anesthesiologist and was there at the hospital with me every day. So I have a, had a really good connection with him as well as a different family. Um, but it was just one way that I felt I could, you know, kind of show the shift in the family that I was there and that I was thinking about Jeff. And, but imagining that you, you embrace that motto as well. I try to, I, I think it, there's, there's only good positive things in, the, in those words. And so in embodying all the meaning behind it and trying to, to, to be the best person I can along those lines is, is important uh, as an athlete and in just life. Yeah, because it can get so easy to get caught up in, well, did I win today? Did I not win? And it's like, oh, there's there's a lot more life going on other than whether I won. And I might be the only one who really cares whether I won as well. This is a big year for you. As we mentioned, you have world championships in Lillehammer, Norway in January. Then you have the Paralympics in uh, in Beijing in March. What are, what are you looking forward to? And actually you're starting to race this coming weekend up in, up in Canada. What are you looking forward to this year? What gets you really excited? In the short term, I'm looking forward to getting back to the start gate. The last time I pushed out of a race start gate was in early 2020. And so getting used to that environment, I'm really excited for, um, showing what I can do and the progress I've actually made rather than taking a step back, showing that I was able to, to step up during my absence. And I'm really looking forward to just, just seeing how it goes. We're traveling to new places. It's going to be awesome. And we're going to have everybody on the circuit's going to have stepped up their game. So it's going to be cool to see how everybody's worked and, you know, where, where am I in the mix? And knowing that I have the confidence to just really uh, go full send on the race course. Full send is, is, is obviously always the hope. Preference on, on disciplines. So slalom, giant slalom, super G, downhill, super combined. I'm thinking this year I'm going to hone in again on the tech events. Uh, I've primarily been a, a slalom GS skier. I really do enjoy super g so i'm gonna get into that and hopefully have a chance in the the combined and the new one that i really enjoy is the parallel event and so i'm not 100 percent sure on where we're gonna have those races if we're gonna have those races but that's really enjoyable to me so uh, i am excited to, to compete in those i do love downhill uh, i do feel i have a strong sense of line and how that works however um i think for my for my health and for my ability to concentrate on the other events, it will be best for me to, to, to not compete as much in downhill. Not compete as much in downhill. Can you describe what the parallel is? Because some people just might not know. Absolutely. So there's a lot of different variations of it. But what it breaks down to is that you have two skiers um, that will start out of a start gate and will go around a parallel course, each athlete at the same time. 
and whoever gets the finish line first. Right. Yeah. And it's really cool in Paralympics how we do it because based on your factor from your disability, that person, you know, with the more impairment will get kind of a head start and then you chase them down. So it, it, it's really trying to level that playing field of head to head competition. And that's always fun. That's a new thing in the able-bodied world, you know, a few years now, but for us, it's really fresh. So I'm excited for that. And, and that's an interesting way to look at it in perspective as well is that the gates open and, and you could be skiing against me. And so I'm skiing in a mono ski. And so I get out first and then you have to chase me down because you are in one of the fastest in some events you're in the fastest class right the the zero zero factor class or one factor. almost yeah yeah almost i'm i'm maybe one or two away from that but yes right exactly so what how does that play out i mean that's the interesting part of the people watching in the parallel can see how the factor system works where historically they've figured out a way they've they've compiled all the all the data all the results over the years to figure out you know essentially a a, a percentage difference and I mean, it's almost like a golf handicap kind of thing but it's not exactly the same but it's like you you might finish in in a minute i might finish in a minute 10 or something like that and that might be sort of the relative the relative difference which which then in the parallel, I get those 10 seconds back and, and I'm, I, I, I'm allowed to, you know, and I go, I go to the finish and it's a race to the finish. Psychologically, how does that, how does that work for you looking at, looking at the race? Is it fun to be able to have somebody to chase? Is it cool that the audience can get a chance to see what exactly you're up against because sometimes it can be really challenging when you're a faster class and you feel like those in the slower class have more of an advantage in some ways because you've got to ski a lot faster to make a big difference sometimes it seems like yeah i think it makes it more interesting for spectators too because it takes the whole idea of that time difference from the end of the race and it puts it in the beginning of the race you know you might finish a race and then they'll take your time off and I'll finish racing the same time. But in the parallel event, you see that difference of time as the athletes go out of the gate. So the whole idea of the factor kind of gets pushed aside because you're no longer thinking about, oh, how much time someone got taken off. You're, you're watching and seeing, okay, who gets to the finish line first, which is more exciting. Does that work for you as an athlete? There's some athletes who definitely in parallel they they or dual uh whatever you want to call it ski much better because because it gets the competitive juices flowing and it's not about oh am i making a nice turn here it's like okay am i catching this person am i staying ahead of that person how does it work for you or is it something that really grabs you i i love the whole um trial of it the whole uh energy around it and it is different you know pushing out of the start gates completely different with with handles and, and that uh but i i like to to chase and it, it keeps me amped up keeps you amped up and the other thing about this that we haven't talked about it's not like you just have one race you're not just racing once against against one person or twice where you switch courses you're moving on from the round of 16 to the round of eight to the round of four to two to hopefully hopefully winning. So not only is it head to head, but it's also the endurance of being completely jacked up in that first race and then getting on the lift and going back up and doing it all over again. Right. Rather than doing one or two runs, you could be doing, you know, as many as eight, nine, you, however the format is, you could be doing a lot more runs. So the stamina and athleticism is fundamentally different than actual just regular events. Well, I hope we get a chance to see it. I mean, that is, that's a fun event and it's fun visually. As you said, it's fun for the audience to be able to see how it all shakes out. And it's a shorter course. It's not a minute long course. I mean, you're looking at like a 25 second course or something in that, in that general vicinity. So I think this will be cool. Well, good luck this year. We look forward to watching you. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. Awesome time.
Thomas, always a pleasure. Uh, definitely look forward to watching you this year. People will get a chance to watch you and at the Paralympics. Hopefully, we're crossing our fingers. They'll get a chance to watch you at the World Championships as well. To all of you, thank you for joining in. This has been absolutely a blast for me to be able to talk to Thomas. And then it'll be a blast to be able to get to watch him ski. If you did not get a chance to, to hear the whole conversation or watch the whole conversation, you can go to the One Revolution page. It'll be archived there. We will also edit this and turn it into a podcast. So you will be able to see it on YouTube, on Spotify, on Apple, on Amazon, on Google, all of the places where you find your podcast. Go to those podcasts, check it out as you're driving along in your car. The greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends, tell your friends that you enjoyed it, tell them to tune in and like us and follow us. So we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thomas, thanks again. Good luck.